Welcome to Limud Moment, a podcast from Limud, New York. Limud, New York celebrates Jewish life and learning in all its diversity by bringing together Jews of all backgrounds and all ages. Today, we're learning with Shira Hecht Kohler. This session, titled Creativity versus Obedience, Competing Values in Jewish Thought, was recorded live at Limud, New York's annual conference in February 2017. It was one of more than 300 program sessions on dozens of topics, from the scholarly to the musical to just plain fun. Let's listen. Um, I'm Shira Echt Kohler. I'm the director of communal engagement at Nadrisha Institute uh, in New York City on the Upper West Side. I started working there in the summer. I also direct the high school program. Um, I taught high school Talmud for the last 10 years, both at North Shore Hebrew Academy in Great Neck and uh, recent, most, more recently at SAR High School in Riverdale. And prior to that, I practiced law um, and excited this Monday morning to close up with you on some of the core themes that we've been talking about over the uh, over the conference. Um, so, session on technology. I moderated. Yeah, I moderated a panel on the panel was on creativity and innovation in Jewish tradition and Jewish life, and it became a session about technology. Um, hopefully, some of what we talked about yesterday in that session will inform our conversation today, and. What I, what I would like to do is explore some text together, but then really open up to conversation. So we'll split our time between textual exploration and then, um, and, and then discussion. Talk a little bit about the evolution of the topic, given the essential questions that are framing, that frame the, the Lima Conference this year. And the topic that we were talking about, I titled it, although I'm not sure it's a perfect title, Creativity versus Obedience, Competing Values in Jewish Thought. And um, we can, you know, utilize another dichotomy, innovation versus tradition or preservation versus creativity. I didn't have the exact, you know, Obedience is not exactly does not exactly capture um, the tension that hopefully we'll flesh out and highlight together. Um, but given the you know the essential questions that frame the conference this year and the discussion in particular about creativity and innovation and how creativity and innovation can 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 find um, new avenues and channels in Jewish thought and Jewish culture and Jewish tradition and Jewish text study, I wanted to explore. Uh, perhaps a little bit of a pushback, right, in, in you know, in, in the discussion of creativity. And, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, and actually, to explain the evolution and the answer to the question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you a step further back and use something I'm very steeped in in terms of raising my children, uh, parenting models and a genre of parenting books that have become very, very popular sort of self-help parenting books that are flooding the market. Um, to frame our conversation of creativity versus obedience or some other regimented kind of, of path. There are two books, and you'll see how this all well, falls in there in a second. There are two books that I want to contrast, um, one from a few years ago, one that, that came out recently, just a few months ago. The first is, you have it in your, I mean, I didn't give you a source from it, but a, a number one in your source, it just gives you the titles in case you want to look at them. And I'm sure many of you know these books. Um, the Battle Hill of the Tiger Mother, Amy Chua, is a, a law professor at Yale University, wrote a, kind of made a splash when she wrote this parenting book, and we'll talk about why in a second, versus a book that came out, I believe, in January. Marjorie Engel is a writer. Um, she writes in many different places. Uh, Tablet Magazine is where she has been writing a lot more recently. Um, and that book called Mamala Knows Best. And the books really kind of take, at least my read on it, take very different paths of how to best parent. I mean, I know there are a lot of different ways that we can parent, but they really kind of um, are, are set up as, as a dichotomy. Um, in, in Battle Hill of the Tiger Mom, and, and there was a lot of discussion about it and then pushback and then a response. In the Times, Amy Chua kind of presents a very structured, regimented model of parenting. Um, routine, practice, perfection, and raising her daughters to be right, the best musicians, artists. There's a story, and she got a lot of critique actually for this story, there's a story where um, one of her daughters made her, um, I mean, there was a Mother's Day card or a birthday card, and drew it hastily, made a nice card, gave it to her, 
And she essentially like gave it back and said, this isn't good enough, like do it again. Um, and so there was a response to that. And then she's like, well, I didn't actually mean it to be so coarse and harsh in, our, in my model. Um, but, but just if, if we had to typify kind of this book, it presents a theory of parenting that's very structured, regimented, um, and yielding results that, that were really, I mean, in, in, her, in this situation, um, that she wanted and that objectively one could look at and say, wow, right, you have world-class musicians um, coming, out, coming out of this model. I mean, it reminds me also of when I read, I'm a big tennis player, when I read Andre Agassi's autobiography, um, it was astounding to me as somebody who like followed him and loved him and idealized and he was a motivating force for me to hit that ball against the wall hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times um, I'm practicing on my own and when he talks about his father putting him in the crib at an early age and wrapping handles on his hands and his mobile in his crib had a tennis ball hanging from it right there was this sense of well if you want to create and Andre Agassi and, you know, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, like Serena Williams. I and that's what, you, that's what you do. That's what you need to do, right, is one sort of model. Um, and so, so Battle of the Tiger Mom evokes that sense of very structured, routinized practice. And uh, Marjorie Ingalls' book, which I, I enjoyed very much. Actually, it was my Yom Kippur in between <laughs> reading and my 15-year-old daughter sort of picked it up in the middle and was like, hey, this is really interesting. And then at the end of the day, she turns to me, she goes, Mom, when I asked her a question about something, she goes, you know, I read that book and it said, you should back the heck off. So why are you telling me what to do? And I was like, oh no, this is what happens when you leave parenting books around your children. Um, but Mama Knows Best reflects a much more kind of free range, unstructured, creative model outside the box parenting. Um, it's a very funny book. It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it. Um, and actually she talks about the, the sort of model of the neurotic and overbearing or sort of like the typical Jewish mother. She challenges the assumptions that we have about the typical neurotic and overbearing Jewish mother saying that actually that's really a product of 1950s, 60s, post-war suburbanization. And actually, if you look at Jewish parenthood historically, going back much further, you'll see that kids were generally raised in a way that was much less overbearing, much more open to you know asking questions, challenging authority, being inquisitive, being creative. She gives a historical development here. Um, stepping out of norms, that was the way to survive historically as a child growing up, as a you know minority in, in hostile environments. And it's a very interesting kind of discussion of history and challenging assumptions and also um, just a lot of very funny anecdotes. But the model is, what you come out with after reading this book, is a, a model of parenting that's just much more um, unstructured, free-range, uh, uh, and and creative, maybe if we can call it that. Although I'm not sure if we want to, how we want to call it that. But setting up that dichotomy, I think, is helpful and was helpful for me, particularly also as someone who I've got four kids. The oldest is 15. Um, our youngest is two. So we we've sort of right, been in parenting for a while, even though I'm not very old. Um, it's just been a long time. And and this past year, last year, we live in New York City, and last year we were on sabbatical, Aaron and myself, our family was on sabbatical in Jerusalem, and kind of transplanting our four children from an environment which I felt was a little bit too rigid in every way, in the school system, the inability to let kids just walk and go on their own to the opposite extreme, living in Israel, living in Jerusalem, where, you know, seven-year-olds escort their four-year-olds on the bus, and there's a sense of kind of kids owning their own identities and lives in a way that is very... Um, helpful to parents but also really nourishing for children and watching kind of those models and now coming back like yanking everybody back and putting them back into the structure model for for myself and for my kids it was very hard right suddenly they want to go somewhere I said here here's your metro card go like and their friends or parents are kind of resisting here saying what do you mean you're just letting your kids get your you know your 14 year old on the subway I'm like yes my 14 year old on the subway like it's okay you know it's and so with those two um models, I think, present a dichotomy, doesn't exactly fit the structure, but it's something that spoke to me, and I said, okay, given the topic of creativity that we'll be exploring as one of the essential questions on the mood, I wanted to, to look at how um, our sacred texts 
shed light on the conversation, not parenting per se. Okay, we're leaving parenting aside. That was really just um, a framework for the discussion, both in terms of you know raising children, but also education choices, how we educate and how we as adults live our lives, select our professions, um, and make the choices that we do in living lives as adults. So the parenting is really just um, what I've been thinking about, pros and cons of each, but kind of a model to set up as a framework. So I wanted to, you know, to look at, at some of our, our sacred texts. Um, I will say that and this is what we have and what we're going to be discussing together is not at all a survey, a complete survey of all biblical and rabbinic literature on the topic of creativity and obedience or structure. Um, there were just some selected texts that I, that I thought could shed light on the conversation, hitting on, on different realms. So as an opener, that's, uh, that's what we're going to do together today. And looking at the tension, right, this tension in different realms and seeing how it plays out within an individual, within a community, within a society, and what does it mean really to be creative and what is the pushback against sort of a hyper mode of creativity? Are there things that are lost? What do we lose when we're too structured? Um, and kind of looking at our, at our sacred text. So I wanted to open uh, with sort of the opening of the Bible um, and an essay. You have an excerpt from an essay uh, by uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, or Dr. Joseph Soloveitchik, the Rev, and The Lonely Man of Faith was an essay originally published in 1965 in Tradition Magazine and, and subsequently republished a very famous philosophic essay um, where the tension between creativity and, here we'll say, preservation is set up as a core part of the human experience. The, the Rabbi Soloveitchik reads the first two chapters of Genesis, first two chapters of Breshit, as offering two different images of Adam. Right? We have two accounts of creation. We'll go through some discrepancies. I'm sure most of us are familiar with this. Um, and the dichotomy is set up in a way that the Rabbi Soloveitchik says they're at odds with each other. And what, what emerges is two different um, depictions of man. In Genesis 1, we have... Adam the first, in the language of the Rev, who is, you know, majestic man, is what he's called. He employs kind of all his creative faculties in order to master his environment, mandated by God. And the second image is Adam the second, um, who's distinctly different human, right? This is what the Rev calls covenantal man who surrenders himself to the will of God. We'll go through a number of the discrepancies very briefly, just so that you see how this emerges, and then look at and then look at the Rav's language. And there are four major discrepancies between the two accounts of creation in Genesis one and Genesis two. In the first story, it says that man Adam was created b'tzelem elokim, right, in the image of God, while nothing is said about how his body is formed. In the second account of creation, uh, the pasuk tells us that Adam was fashioned from the dust of the ground, God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. So in terms of how we just see man emerging on the scene, we have a vast difference between the first two prakim. Um, Second difference, in the first story, Adam is commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it or conquer it. That's language that's going to be important for our discussion today. Right? Peru, Uruvu, Milua, Ta'aretz, Vikiv, Shuha, conquer the world. While the second story, Adam is charged with, um, with the mandate to, to cultivate, to work, to watch, to guard the garden, and to keep it. So there's a sense of cultivation, a sense of preservation. And the third discrepancy in the first story in, in Breshi Perak Aleph, both male and female are created concurrently, while Adam... The second in Parakbet emerges alone, and only afterwards does Eve appear as his helpmate and complement. And finally, the name of God is different in both chapters. In the first Parak, only the name Elohim appears, whereas in the second, Elohim is used in conjunction with Tetragrammaton, so it's Adonai Elohim as, right, um, created Adam the second, um, and, and Rabbi Salvechik understands the discrepancies as making an anthropological statement. Things are centered around man. There are two types of man. There are two types of personalities within every man. Um, there are two human ideals. There are two personalities within human being. Right? Neither is is correct. But the tension and the dichotomy exists from the very core of human nature. We have. 
Adam who's charged with being creative and going out and, and, and right, conquering, and Adam who is set to watch, to guard, uh, a, a very different kind of model. Um, if we could read in the second source, we have just some language. It's a wonderful essay. Um, I first read it in high school, and having re and I know that it's on the curriculum in a number of um, at least modern Orthodox high schools, junior, senior year, as part of uh, often either a Tanakh, uh, a Tanakh curriculum or Jewish philosophy. This is a work that's being read. Um, in high school and then revisited, and I think it's, it's important, actually, I'm, I'm emphasizing the curricular choice because I think it's very important, our curricular choices, to set the dichotomy up early on um, and have adolescents, as they're thinking through their own identities, be confronted with this tension that exists in our very foundational um, text of the creation of man. So we'll just read a, a, a two paragraphs I selected. It was hard for me to select because it's just very packed in wonderful language, but have to make choices. Adam the first is aggressive, bold, and victory-minded. He engaged in creative work trying to imitate his maker. The most characteristic representative of Adam the first is the mathematical scientist who whisks us away from the array of tangible things, from color and sound, from heat, touch, and smell, which are the only phenomena accessible to our senses, into a formal, relational world of thought constructs, the product of his arbitrary postulating and spontaneous positing and deducing. Adam II does not apply the functional method invented by Adam I. He does not create a world of his own. Instead, he wants to understand the living, given world into which he has been cast. Therefore, he does not mathematize phenomena or conceptualize things. He encounters the universe in all its colorfulness, splendor, and grandeur, and studies it with with the naivete, awe, and admiration of the child who seeks the unusual and wonderful in every ordinary thing and event. While Adam I is dynamic and creative, transforming sense data into thought constructs, Adam II is receptive and beholds the world in its original dimensions. He looks for the image of God not in the mathematical formula or the natural relational law, but in every beam of light, in every bud and blossom, in the morning breeze and the stillness of a starlit evening. Um, beautiful language uh, to identify the struggle that is, that is the internal conflict inside of man and the dialectic that's just a fundamental part of human nature and an essential part of the human condition. And again, Did he write in English? Uh, this was originally written in English, yes. He wrote in... Hebrew, German, Yiddish, right? um, Yiddish, but this essay was orig- originally written in English, unlike Halachic Man, which was originally written in Hebrew, um, I believe. Uh, this, was, this was originally written in English. Okay, so that's kind of, if we can you know, have tension in sphere number one, it's within the individual as a fundamental part of, of the human condition. Uh, I want to move, not that far, two chapters <laughs> in Genesis, um, to, to a different tension it, I mean, it still is sort of within the human, but in terms of not in, in how human beings and the human ideal um, is a core part of our identity, but in choices that are made that reflect the dichotomy and the tension. And there I wanted to look at um, a short excerpt from the narrative of Cain and Hevel, uh, Cain and Abel, and specifically look at um, how the tensions play out in terms of choice of profession that Kain and Hevel choose. Um, the narrative, this narrative, I'll just say as an aside, is, is extremely rich in interpretive history uh, on multiple levels, and I sort of apologize for kind of pointing out, you know, I just want to pull out one aspect of the narrative and focus on their professions and the implications that come with those choices and professions. So, Right. We, we have the text in front of us. What, what were the professions of Cain and Hevel? What did they choose to do in life? Yeah, so it says it up top. Who was what? Cain. V'adam v'yadat chava ishto v'tar v'telet et Cain. V'tomer kaniti ish et Hashem. V'tosef l'ledet et achiv et Hevel. V'yihi Hevel ro'et son v'kain haya over adama. Interesting sort of presentation here. Right? Adam knew his wife, Eve. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain, saying, I acquired a man with God. And she continues to have children, and she gives birth to Hevel. Now, what's interesting, 
given their their birth order, and then it says in the next right the, the end of that uh, of that verse, the end of that pasuk, and I right reverses the sequence. By he Hevel roetzon and Hevel was a sh- was a shepherd. V'kain haya oved adama, a worker, a tiller of the soil, a farmer. So immediately when we're introduced to the characters, it's just interesting to see Cain was the older. Right, Abel was the younger, but when we see their what they did, the order is reversed. Um, why do you think that is? It's a lot of different. But what happens subsequently in this narrative? Good. Cain kills Havel after what? After their sacrifice, their their offerings. Great, they both bring offerings, and they both bring offerings from, <laughs> from what they do. And, maybe continue, um, Cain brings mi pri from the, from the fruit of the earth. Vehevel, hevigam hu mi sono u He brings his, his, you know, the best of his animals. Um, and whose sacrifice is accepted? God likes flesh. God likes, right, God likes flesh. And, and that's what, that's what spurs the anger in Cain, right? Hevel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is not, and then he gets angry. And so perhaps the order, the switch in order, um, could be an allusion to what is going right, to follow um, or a sense of offering um, a perspective on, on the professions, right? If... One of them is more noble. One of them is more important. One of them is more right, dynamic or more creative than that profession is, is, is listed first. Um, and so on its face, it seems that there seems to be something much more noble about working with animals than working with the land, even though being a farmer actually requires initially much more sophistication and, and, and innovation to begin with. So we have these two professions out there. Um, I guess before we look at the, the next text, which reflects on it, and then we'll push back, I would just, you know, I want to ask you, which profession do you think is a more, um, more noble or more creative? What are your impressions of shepherd versus, versus farmer in terms, of, in terms of if, let's say, okay, we have choices in what we can choose to be and do? I mean, if I had to choose myself between one and the other. Sorry? If I personally yeah. had to choose. Um, well, either if you had to choose, or even if it's not you, but reflecting on you know the industry, the tr- you know the choice that one would make, you might it might things might speak differently to you um, as opposed to sort of norms that we recognize. Well, that's an important thing to be out there. I don't necessarily don't it doesn't suit me, but I think that there need to be people in the world doing that. Well, as a vegetarian, it's. Ridiculous for me to Yeah, they're over vegetarian factor and the point of being a royal show just to get the wool. Yeah. Um, or milk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, using using parts of, right, using parts of women without eating the animal, feeding other, right, feeding other animals, right, the skin, the wool, the byproducts. And yeah, Sam. Just saying inter like all the forefathers are shepherds. It seems like there's Okay, good. So kind of fast forwarding and looking, you're, you know, I kind of wish, right, we didn't have those other models for the purposes of this question right now. Say like in an, in an abstract, totally like blank slate world, what would speak to you? But going forward and knowing look, Moshe is a shepherd, Avraham's a shepherd first, right? David is a shepherd. There's something about being a shepherd that um, that is important, that God likes, that symbolizes that is important for leadership. Um, yeah. And so the Roed Zone is like the paradigm of, of Shmirah, right? In other words, what does the Roed Zone do? What is it, right? They're just taking, they're taking care of the animals, right? They're, they're acting more as a shomer, whereas here it's, it's right, uh, uh, kind of is a Oved Adama, right? So that's like working it, manipulating it. So you have those two commands sort of split into the two sons, 
but also like you get this kind of chiastic structure, the, the ABBA here, that kind of emphasizes that really Hevel's not the important thing for us to be looking at at all. He's stuck within the middle of it. Kind gets his his name is given with a reason. Hevel isn't, and also the two psukim open with ve haadam mm -hmm. and ends mm -hmm. with oved adama. So you exactly. have the bookends <laughs> of that. It seems to imply, in a certain sense, that that striving nature is, in fact, the more dominant one within humanity. But maybe that isn't what God prefers. Meaning kinds, right? Kinds. Yeah. kinds' tendency is even perhaps closer to adopts, in a way. And yet... Kind is doing exactly what it is. favors the other. And so it almost sets up a tension of human beings are workers, but God's not a fan of that. Great, great. We're going to see in the next source, actually, Leon Cass says, uh, uh, you know, basically that. We're looking at Ke uh, looking at kind because we think what happened then subsequently also in, um, in, in interpretive history and rabbinic literature, kind becomes the embodiment of evil. Right? We have all these interest interesting midrashim about how, right, Chava slept with a snake and, or Satan, and that's where kind, that's what it means when it says, kanita isha tashem, right? This is some sort of, right, uh, you know, demigod, evil, satanic figure. And so, there's pushback against that because kind becomes embodiment of evil, but was kind really like what, what in kind's origins when we're looking at the prototypes of kind and Hevel? And if this were uh, you know a lecture that we're, we're discussing personality analysis identity, then I would focus on right, the, the, the unpack these these texts much more uh, more carefully because we see that initial right Hevel gamhu. He's like an afterthought. He too. He's a side thought. So who's really the more creative, innovative thinker here who's important doing the work that Adam was charged with? Um, it's Kayan, right? And there's something important and noble about that. Nevertheless, right, from the what happens, we see that it's dangerous if it's unfettered, um, that, that creativity. So we're going to read that in, in just a moment um, from Professor Cass. Exactly, right? If we're looking at the names, a kinyan, kind, from the root of acquisition, there's something right, important about his very being and is fundamental for society, right? A great society needs to be built on agriculture, the greatest societies were. Um, and so kind represents that important fundamental entry into, into, the, into the realm. And Hevel's name vacuous, vapid, kind of wind, vapor. There's a certain nothingness that is implied there. Um, uh, let's take a look. Was there another, another comment? Let's take a look at, at the next source. <coughs> From um, Leon Kasten in his book, The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis. <coughs> he talks about, reflects on, on the two occupations and says, farming... I'll just kind of skip the second part. Farming requires intellectual sophistication and psychic discipline. Wit is necessary to foresee the possibility of bread from grain, to develop tools, to protect crops, self-control. Indeed, a massive change in the psychodynamics of need and satisfaction is needed before anyone will work today so that he might eat months later. In addition, agriculture comes with a new relation to the earth and also towards the heavens. Farming means possession of land and settled habitat. It represents a giant step toward human self-sufficiency. Yet it is also precarious and very dependent on rain. Because he mixes his labor with the earth, the farmer claims possession not only to the crops, but also to the land itself. For the same reason, he is even inclined with regard to himself as responsible, creatively as maker, for the produce itself. On this view, the farmer is an audacious and self-assertive character. You have that sense of kind, important, audacious, self-assertive, doing something that needs to be done, foreseeing in the future possibilities, setting it up now, right? That takes a lot of sophistication to see initially, right, what might happen so I can set things up, 
for the future uh, in terms of um, um, development. Um, the shepherd, in contrast, lives a simple and, by and large, artless life. His work is mild and gentle. His rule requires no violence. The sheep graze as they roam and produce wool and milk and out of their own substance, the shepherd contributing nothing but also harming nothing. Though he wanders the earth as he pleases, the shepherd has no illusions of self-sufficiency. Indeed, he is likely to feel acutely the dependence of his entire life on powers not under his control and processes not of his own creation. The settled farmer seeks to design his life. The wandering shepherd allows his life to be designed by the world. So in sum, on the understanding of two occupations, Cain's, Cain's way of life, like the man, is more complex, possessive, artful, potentially harmful and dangerous, but with the prospect of higher achievements and risks of civilization. Hevel's way, like the man, is simple, open and permissive, harmless and certainly vulnerable, and besides, incapable of accomplishing much of anything. Hevel's way is fragile, not to say impossible. Kain's way is problematic, not to say indecent, unless it can be educated and restrained. Um, so when we look at this, right, this depiction, it becomes very clear that Cass is implying that Kain is the more creative um, but potentially dangerous um, innovator, uh, and Hevel is less so. Where does dangerous come from? Well, I think dangerous is more in the sense of... Um, in that line where he says he's inclined to regard himself as responsible creatively as maker for the produce itself, meaning in a sense of the the perhaps the arrogance, the ego that can come from right from an innovation such as as this. I think that's um, and I mean, and we see what happens. He's dangerous, and where does that right? He kills his brother. What does that stem from? The jealousy. I mean, that's a separate. But but that's also reading the end of the story and then reading back yeah, into into this person. Well, it's true. Not fair at all. So let's leave for a second. I, I do want to open up and say, well, is there any pushback on this presentation um, uh, on Cass's analysis of which is would, is more inherently creative? Think about think about agriculture and think about shepherding, and, and I think we can think, like Sam said, of people who are shepherds, um, leaders in, in Jewish history. I'm going to push it slightly differently because mm-hmm. the origins of agriculture and the origins of animal husbandry differ. Um, animal husbandry, you really have to have some dangerous sense about you that you're going to take an animal that is out there wild and bring it into your home those animals don't wander in by themselves. Agriculture the development that happened what we think of at this point is by chance. Their plants appeared around us we picked and encouraged some, we let them grow near us and their fruit fell nearby and so we encouraged those again and that happened without creativity, without thinking that this is what I'm going to accomplish, but animal husbandry is very dangerous. Wonderful, right? So the initial, I, I think, I'm glad you pointed that out, Mark, like, looking at the initial, like, the <laughs> origins, right, the initial, great, and that's where I want to kind of take this, because if we look initially at both of these, then, right, it becomes very clear that, um, they're not the way that they're presented in the story that we have with Cain and Abel. Okay, they're not the way that they're presented, and and subsequently, right? Once once we have sort of the the dynamic on the ground, then if we're saying we live in a world where where we can then choose to 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 follow in a profession, then something might be very creative initially. Right, the first time it's done, but then subsequently it's actually quite boring, right? Like, so let, let's talk about agriculture for a mo- minute. The first great, greatest civilizations, um, Egypt, Babylonia, were agricultural civilizations. They were built on we need right agriculture for societies to function. Um, they were incredibly dynamic and creative, but then there's just sort of like a, a repetition. Okay, we have to troubleshoot, but. It's not inherently create. You're tied to the land. You can't move. You can't. Right? You live a very static kind of life. So whereas in its origin, and I think here Cass is, is talking really about the origin and Cain as like the innovator. But then subsequently we say, well, this is this is largely like an an, an artless kind of form, um, and it doesn't allow for individ- individualistic, free creativity. Whereas if we look at animal husbandry, shepherding. 
it does, like once you're not tied to the land, you can move, you can wander, you can think. It's not backbreaking labor, right? Hevel is saying, essentially, my father was told to work the lands. Kain is doing exactly what he needs to do. What do I need to do this backbreaking labor for, right? I can kind of adopt from the house where I can be freer to roam, to wander, to think. So you have that creative individualistic aspect that can come with being a shepherd that uh, it it just can't with um, it being a farmer, even though at its origin, it was much more creative and innovative. I I think we may also be getting caught within the two different implications of the word creative. Okay, good. In other words, the artist versus the engineer. Right? There's a tendency in certain circles to think about the artist as the, as the paradigm of creativity, and therefore, as you say, not being tied to the land, being able to move around, and individual and flowing, and you know, while the sheep are grazing, you have time to reflect and dream, and you know, all these sort of metallic images. But the flip side is like the 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 city-dwelling farm-based society. Right, needs engineers and engineering to sort of build all of that stuff, and that's a, that's that's creation too. And so in, even in the Rav's, what's the creation that the Rav is talking about? When he's talking about, you know, uh, the 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 creative man. Is that the artist or is it the engineer? <coughs> Great, great. How do we, I mean, how do we define creativity? And I think this is something that came up in the panel when we were talking about yesterday. How can creativity, um, you know, how an innovation be brought into our Jewish life? We were, we were talking largely about technology. That's just the panelists ended up. But there is, you know, technology that that enables something to happen, and technology that is actually utilized to, to like, is the. It's not just the enabler, but it is the creative result and the process. So I think when we throw the term around, right, we do have. Have a different, a different, different channels, different avenues of how we use creativity. Um, and I thank you for for clarifying that. You're listening to Limud Moment, a podcast from Limud, New York. If you're enjoying what you're learning, please visit our website for more resources and to find out about upcoming events. Go to limudny.org. That's L-I-M-M-U-D-N-Y.org. And now back to Shira Hecht Kohler. Um. Okay, so I, I, just to close off the choice of professions, I think we're, you know, what we see here is that we have this tension. And we could say the tension is, you know, lies in the idea that a society really has to be um, built upon on, on farmers. That's the, the idea of great civilizations can only self-sustain um, once they are. But, but we also need the other model of, of people to be shepherds. And um, as Sam alluded to, you know, we see that the visionaries and the leaders in Jewish history are shepherds. Um, but not everyone can do that. Not everyone is suited for that. But we do need some individuals who are able to do that. And that whole idea exists in this very fraught state of tension. right? And it's a one that, that I think we can take, and we, you know, maybe we'll talk about it afterwards, in a very personal way. right? We could recognize, like Mark said at the beginning, is this a choice about me? Is this a choice about somebody else? But we could recognize that there are people who need to... to be doing that to be the visionary to be the wanderer but that doesn't necessarily a society can't function if everyone is like that and so the real creativity might be from the plan of right the urban plan and the farm nevertheless we do need we need both and so this choice plays out and i think when i when i initially um kind of worked this out with a group of students they really felt right and that it spoke to their souls of like what classes am I taking and what universities am I going to and it speaks to all different kind of very fundamental choices that we have to make that are set up as, as a core part of, of the human experience and um, I want to move forward to the next source and kind of move the tension into a different realm um, into the realm of Torah. Uh, and this tension and dialectic exists also in the realm of scholarship, in the realm of Torah, in the, in the realm of individuals who are bearers of a tradition, but also innovators within that tradition. Um, so the first sources that we looked at looked at the individual, an individual in society. And the next sources move into the realm of, um, of Torah and of knowledge and of deducing new things. So if we look at the source number four, uh, what we have here is um, a passage from Babylonian Talmud Masachan Horayot, 
Dafyadal and Amun Aleph 14a in Tractate Horeot, where it describes a debate between whether the the head of the academy in Pumpadita should be um, Rabba or Rabbi Yosef, right? And different personality depictions. Um, Rabbi Yosef had a phenomenal memory, knew all Tanaitic literature by heart. He was what's called um, a Sinai, right? He's Sinai, whereas Rava doesn't have that similar encyclopedic knowledge, um, but was a brilliant analyst and, and described in the language of Talmud as an Oker Harim, an uprooter of mountains. And, you know, the choice is set up is who's more appropriate to be the head of a yeshiva? Is it Rabbi Yosef, the Sinai, um, or is it Rava, the Oker Harim, the uprooter, the innovator, the one who's going to take, right, the tradition and, and, and not just bear, but bring it to different, different places. Um, Rabbi Yosef was selected, the Sinai, the anchored, right, brilliant analyst. He declines. Rabbi takes the position. Um, 22 years later, after Rabbi's death, Rabbi Yosef assumed the position. So we can, you know, we see already set up in terms of leadership. What is the model of Torah leadership that uh, is expressed um, in, in Talmudic thought. Is it the Sinai? Is it the Oker Harim? Now, I have to say, the Oker Harim, right, Rabba was not somebody that didn't have the encyclopedic, right, didn't have that like, sense of knowledge. We're not just talking about somebody that is innovative without being built upon a foundation. Nevertheless, in terms of typifying their personalities, it is set up as a dichotomy between the Sinai and the Oker Harim. Um, and similarly, when it, you know, we, I, I put the text and I just summarized it. The next text, it, it reflects a similar um, debate. This is from the Mishnah in, in Avot, the second chapter, the eighth Mishnah, which talks about which of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's students is the greater or the greatest student. And again, we have set up here, right after going through and listing five students, we'll focus on two that are kind of pitted against one another, um, a dichotomy that is set up that's similar to the passage in, in the Talmud that we just saw. Um, the first opinion is Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus, who is described as a bor sod, he's a sealed pit who doesn't forget anything, right? So that embodies the kind of Sinai model that we see in the Talmud. And Abba Shaul is of the, the, uh, is of the position that of the students is Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, who was a ma'ayan hamit gaber, an overflowing stream of water, a certain brilliance that stems from that, which was which was the greatest. And again, we see the same similar dichotomy that we saw from the beginning. There's a real tension here, pitting one against the other. What's more important, retaining information like a sealed pit or an ever-strengthening fountain? Is it the bor socha enoma beitipa or the mayan hamitzgaber? There's no discussion here, which is just interesting. I mean, there is a lot of commentary um, outside of the text. But initially, when the texts are set up, there is no, right, there's no hybrid model that's like, well, ideal, we would want this, right? They're really set up as, as dichotomies, which just makes me think of how we, you know, how we, like how we started when we think of parenting, we think of... Right? Are you tiger mom or are you free range mom? Right? And so obviously right, there's a hybrid that, and that, that'll be part of our conversation. But as it's set up in our sacred text, it's really set up as pitting one against the other and the tension really existing. Um, and I think um, it's something for us to take into consideration both when, when looking at our sources and, and individuals, but also when we move forward and we create, we produce, we teach, we make curricular choices, um, what are we emphasizing, right? And there's a lot of discussion and pushback of, you know, the idea of memorizing multiplication tables is so passe, and so, you know, kids are sitting on the floor creating models with cubes. Um, nevertheless, right, I think there's something to be said about, well, sometimes you need something on your fingertips, and if you didn't do it in third grade, then it's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's you've lost it. Um, so this kind of you know, uh, dichotomy um, has very practical ramifications, even though right here we're just looking at sort of the presentation. And finally, I, the last source I want to look at, then I want to open up the conversation. The last source um, to extends into, you know, still talking about the realm of Torah scholarship. Um, this is a source from a 19th century scholar, the Nitzvah, the head of the Vallejo and Yeshiva, Naftali Svi Berlin, who explains a transition from the 
traditionalist to the innovative midrashic approach to Torah as parallel to the transition from the first tablets at Sinai written by God to the second one written by Moshe. So we see also this right dichotomy tension now playing out in in the two um, in the two in the two luchot. So I'll just read it together. In the first tablets, there was no gift of chidush at all, but Torah was whatever Moshe heard with its basis in the written Torah. Moshe did not know how to make his own chidush except to think analogically, but without creative pilpul, kind of midrashic creative analysis. But in the second tablets, the power of chidush was granted to innovate new halachot in every generation. That is the meaning of the rabbinic phrase, that everything that a veteran student of Torah will in the future innovate is already given at Sinai. The power to innovate, not the content, is given. The reason God ordered Moshe to carve the second tablets was not because they were not worthy of a divine act, but to teach that the ever-renewing power of halakha given in the second tablets involves the active participation of the labor of human beings who, with divine aid, just as the second tablets were carved by Moshe and the writing was was by God. Um, so, so we see sort of clear transition from one to the one to the other. Um, and this connects to the model of, of if everyone were something, right, if everyone were an oker harim, kind of uprooting and innovating chiddush and pilpul, then there would be no sustained knowledge. But if everyone was a sinai, right, if everyone was a bor sod, a sealed pit, we'd be static. We'd never be innovating and participating in the creative process that God wants, that man, God mandated um, at the beginning of, of Genesis as we opens with. I mean, I think we're pressed to think about the tension and how it plays out in different realms, how we live our lives in accordance with the tension, um, and, and how we can kind of bridge both together and live as full individuals and full, rich, and thriving community. And again, I think there's a lot of very practical ramifications to talk about here. Um, you know, uh, you know. Before I would, I would like to open up for questions. Actually, so I have a couple of points that are very specific practical ramifications that I kind of want to hint upon. But um, I want to hear from from you, kind of reactions in terms of the dichotomy that's set up and the need for for a hybrid model, and maybe perhaps why a hybrid model isn't presented if that really is something that 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 we need. Yeah. So we'll spend you know in the next fifteen minutes or so um, with some questions and discussion. And again, I apologize for, I opened in the beginning, I apologize for not being out in the crowd, which I really like to be, but because this is being recorded, I'm kind of stuck a little bit here. But yeah, Hazisi, you want to say something? Oh, I had a question on, on Cass's understanding of the dichotomy. So when um, Cass is talking about um, uh, the farmers, so it says, uh, you know, farming means a position of the land, so habitat, it represents a giant step towards human self-sufficiency. And then Cass highlights it is also precarious and very dependent on rain. And later on, he summarizes it, saying, in this view, the farmer is an audacious and self-assertive character. And then later on, he talks about how the farmer seeks to design his life, and the wandering shepherd allows his life to be designed by the world. So I didn't understand why Cass um, talks about how the farmer is dependent on rain, and then says that he's a self-assertive character, because it seems to undermine his thesis. Because in that way, really, the the shepherd and the farmer are both uh, allowing their lives to be designed by the world. So, okay, so great, good, good. I think I think my read of that was that um, it actually pushes the farmer to be more creative, knowing that you're so dependent on rain that you need to right, you need to provide for alternate right for for some alternate means in the event that there is no rain. Right. So the fact that right, there is that dependency then enables the farmer to be, or presses the farmer to be more, to anticipate what may happen. So there, I think that that adds to his sort of dimension of, of um, being audacious, self-assertive, looking forward, thinking, what am I going to do if there's a drought? So I need to plan now for the future because I am so dependent on rain. So it's not so much like the vulnerability and the dependence, which the farmer and the shepherd really share, but a sense of, um, of oh, I'll have to be like, extra creative and innovative given how dependent I am on the external factors that are totally out of my control. And that's how I read it. Yeah. Sam? Yeah. Uh, just taking this point, Cass, uh, maybe you could actually use this as a model of combining creativity and obedience in the sense that you need to, you need to abide by a certain body that you are then being creative upon. <coughs> so there is really no creativity... Without a boundary, without obedience. 
Well, obedience there, you're... Meaning you have to, like... Creativity is in a certain field, right? We were going to say a certain artist was creative in, like, this surrealist kind of way, but that's because at least buy into surrealism as, as, like, the basis. You can't be a great, you know, abstract artist unless you actually take fundamentals of drawing and painting, right? Is that essentially what you're, like, we're building upon? Okay, so translate that into... Into the Torah sources. Well, you, you, like, it's kind of what you were saying before. You need this, the, the, you need the, the, the Sinai mountain to uproot the mountain. Um, so. But it's interesting that the, present, right, the presentation is not present. Like, we really present it with a dichotomy. And I, and I wonder why. Like, right. So that's, I guess, what I'm inherently questioning. Like, maybe it's not. I mean, you could, you could obviously play up one more than the other, but it's more of a spectrum than a dichotomy. But the presentation really seems to be, right? If we say Rabba versus Yosef, Sinai versus Oker Harim, even okay. though we all know that actually, right, yeah. these exist on a continuum and a spectrum and that there, is, there are models in between, right? We speak in extremes. The narratives are presented in extremes. The rabbinic literature seems to be at least the ones that I selected for you, right? And I, and I actually worked very hard to look for um, a presentation in rabbinic literature that was not presented in extreme, but it seems to me that most of them really are presented in extremes. Now, coming from, uh, you know, training in, in law, right, we speak in extremes, right? We speak in cases that are so in one direction because then it presses us. Right, to, to evaluate and to think of all permutations. Um, but it's just, it's jarring and it's striking when we're thinking about fundamentals of human nature and the human condition and the dialectic and what it means to, right, to innovate in scholarship and build communities and build thought that, that the extremes are really, um, you know, the, the presentation, but it's compelling, right? It's the same kind of, Amy Chua wants to sell her book, so I'm Tiger Mom, and so does Marjorie Ingalls. So she's like total free range, even though you read the book, and you're like, okay, well, in between, we actually see that you both sort of are, are meeting. It's just where on that spectrum, where on that continuum you're, gonna, you're going to meet. Um, but yeah, right, it does sort of build out of, well, we have foundations and fundamentals that we need to start with, and then... The creati- Again, if we could think, you know, I, 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 I was grasping to think of better language than creativity and obedience. I mean, I think there's a lot more um, to unpack than those terms imply. So, yeah, what's your name? Andy. Andy, okay, Andy, and then we'll... In some ways, I think for, like, B'nai Yisrael and the, and the return to the land is a hybrid. In other words, the stories of, the stories of Bereshit can be read as, like, a conflict between uh, shepherding culture... A shepherding nomadic culture like, like uh, you know, Avraham and his descendants, uh, and Avraham leaving a river-based agricultural society, right back in the right Tigris and Euphrates, and then all of them being enslaved eventually in another river-based agricultural society in Egypt, and right these nomads who are shepherds basically, but when they re-enter the land, they are entering the land. Um, to cultivate it and also to become farmers, but it's not a river-based system, and so it's an agricultural society that, because of the choice of the land, is fundamentally dependent on rain, and you see that in Shema, right? And so, in a certain sense, there's that's this kind of balancing of the um, appreciation of nature and dependence on nature, and just kind of, in a certain sense, praying for, but ultimately accepting what nature gives you um, with building something in permanence and, and, a, and, a, and a kind of land, right? You know, so, I don't know, I feel like that's a bit of a, a, bit of a hybrid. It's sort of a resistance of the, the kind of corruption that enters when you have much more rigid hierarchies and massive societies that river agricultural societies Hmm. Very interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. And, and, and right, in terms of right, the narratives of, of Brashid and, you know, People emerging in a place in time where there's no there's no space there's no rootedness there's no sacred space for God to meet man and we see kind of the evolution of a people without that right very short bounded in Garden of Eden and then there right and, and that building, <laughs> devolves building an altar exactly along the way, exactly so exactly to travel with you exactly building a baby dash right, right. right. There's, exactly. You know, movement toward. Planets. I mean, I think you also have even within the Mishkan, and this I talked about on Friday, and. and um, sacred space lecture, but even within the depictions of the Mishkan and God's presence in the Mishkan, we see a bit of a dichotomy also because we have two depictions of 
right, where the Mishkan was vis-a-vis uh, the people. Um, throughout Exodus and Numbers, we have sort of different depictions that sometimes we see that Mishkan was right at the center, initially presented at the center. Um, in the middle, physically, metaphorically, also at the beginning of, of Bamidbar, the travels of the tribes are centered, right, the Mishkan's at the center and they move, and then we also have, right, depictions of the Ohel Moed and Moshe going out to speak to God that's on the periphery, and what does that mean um, when we think about philosophy of religion, religious ideologies, right, to go to a God um, outside, which one is inherently, right, a more creative relationship. I think you could say right, a centered, rooted, middle of the camp, Mishkan, um, really means like accessibility, ritual knowledge. I know that if I want to access a god, I can follow a particular path, and this is how I do it, and I go, and I know where to go. Whereas a god on the periphery sometimes can imply a bit more, and, and by periphery I think I mean more, kind of. I mean it is physically outside, but a sense of kind of all-encompassing, more creative um, accessibility of religion. So, yeah, we need we have both models. We need, we need to live with both models. But, but great, like thinking about kind of that transition um, from a society that is that is a wandering side to less rooted society. Um, yeah. Oh, you were saying before that you're you're wondering if there's another word for creativity and obedience. I think it's really autonomy versus um, heteronomy. Whereas that. Um, do we have space to, to innovate uh, at the same time be submissive to God? So my question was, um, do you think Rav Soloveitchik would say the same thing as he did in Holy Man of Faith if he, if, he, he, if he could see how it was being interpreted today? In other words, um, so we take this to mean that as long as you choose a community that, um, um, that fulfills the idea that holiness is creativity um, and they do it with integrity, then you can go that path. And so, like, did the Rav really want us to do that? Like, uh, like I'm, th- I'm thinking in, t- in terms of, like, open orthodoxy and, and women's ordination. Because um, I know that the Rav was, like, some very rigid in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, like, interfaith dialogue and openness in general. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so I kind of... Is that... Yeah, I mean, I, I actually... I think that the, the rub was in many ways like Haredi in terms of like yeah. his right lofty analysis um, and and living. Um, I don't I don't want to presu- I mean I, I kind of don't want to uh, address that like the the po- the politics of that right now actually in the context of this I want to I want to stick more to like the human condition. Um, there's a lot. I mean it's a much larger question. I think I'd be happy to talk about it off, you know, outside of the context of of this talk. Um, but but I think the fundamental point of recognizing the di- like the dichotomy existing and then the nature of change and setting up kind of well looking being forward thinking and seeing kind of what happens in in um, in society versus kind of how things are conceived and constructed initially enables that. Um, you know, it enables to really set up the contrast, but I, 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 I don't want to have that, you know, conversation. Like, kind of, Limud was political free from the orthodox perspective for me these few days. So maybe after we can we can talk about that. Is there a hand up here? I, I want to pick up on the um, idea of. I was thinking the same thing that that um, land of Israel is definitely a rain-based agricultural system, not river-based. But also, once we get settled, um, Elijah and others have to go out into the desert to renew that sense of openness, um, which is crucial. But we also, we, you know, we are dichotomous. Uh, there's a bicameral mind and all of those things. It's built into who we are. Uh, it's hard to think, not in terms necessarily of creativity versus obligation, but why not and? Okay? You could have said and, but you chose versus. Well, I, well, I mean, I guess I wanted also to set it up as a dichotomy because that's right, the way the sources are, and that presses us to to think, um, you know. Yeah, and yet there are other societies that religious societies that that don't imagine a creation. We do. Just the fact that we imagine a creation means that we celebrate it. We actually do celebrate it every year, every day. Yeah, I think the language is is um, 
Mark, I'm glad you, you, you know, but the language is deliberate. The language of the sources is deliberate. The language that we use is deliberate, but the language also penetrates and influences the very real decisions that are made on the ground. Um, and again, speaking primarily as an educator on the ground, not as, as, a, as the scholar, um, seeing how the way we present the dichotomy, the continuum, will impact kind of very real choices, curricular choices, the way schools are built, um, the way the, the you know the the way we 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 structure our communities, the way we structure our synagogues, our centers. What are the most important? Like, what are the the, the courses that we're offering? What are we leaving out? And there was just a very interesting discussion yesterday on the panel about creativity, where someone asked the panelists, "In what?" What area do you think we've really failed our community um, in being as creative as we could be? And it was just a very interesting discussion in terms of everyone had a very different take on it. Um, but, but setting things up in very rigid verses does not enable always that practical kind of takeaway that um, enhances, en- enhances lives in a very um, rich way. Yeah. Looking at like the Amakadar, the Natsiv, and and you see it in the Rav, and you see it in a lot of places. Creativity, when it's talked about and celebrated, is the creativity of generally the of the Talmud Chacham and 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 Chiddush. In other words, it's it's scholarly chidush is the is the creative act that they're talking about and celebrating. And so I wonder when you're when you're teaching students um, who, per stage of development, etc., feel a sort of artistic inclination, feel an inclination to be a builder in some way, um, and you're using texts that celebrate chiddush, but they're celebrating chiddush within the Beit Midrash and not in the artist studio, um, or not you know with the CAD CAM and design you know architecture and building, like. Does, does there does a tension arise from the differences between what they want to be mechadesh and the area that they think is really creativity versus the creativity that the tradition actually celebrates? Which isn't that it's not like you know you don't find a lot of Roshe yeshiva celebrating the Mark Chagall, for instance, right? Um, but Chiddush, you know, Chiddush Torah, yeah, you know, two thumbs up. It's, it's, it's a, a wonderful point. Uh, I actually think that, you know, that came up in a, like, it comes up in a lot of discussions where schools and teachers want to give creative projects, quote unquote, whatever that means, and then the kids come up and say, well, this creative project is, is really not creative in the way that I'm thinking. You just want me to rewrite a section of the Talmud, right, using my own interesting scenario, but that's not the type of creativity that I'm seeking. That is much more, right, holistic and and, and not as cerebral. Um, And so I think it's a very important because the sources really are celebrating, right, the intellectual creativity and scholarship creativity, but but I do wonder, um, and I think in terms of presenting, honestly, to me when I present it, I'm going to have presented to to adolescent mind, the model, though, if we can pull the value, right? These texts are about, right? They're about laws and they're about values. So if there is a value for us to pull out of this text, then the value of a creative process and the, the manic energy of the creative process in the, Tal- in the Talmud is something that, um, right, we can pull that value and say, translate that into your life, right? Not everyone was a scholar sitting in the Bami Drash in some times, and not everyone is a scholar sitting in the Bami Drash now, but if we're studying these texts for something other than, right, law and really pulling out the values, and I think you can, and, it, and, and it's a bit of a stretch, and I think we're seeing it more and more in communities that were inclined to be less quote-unquote creative and with focus on the arts and... Um, because it's like this, we're, we're recognizing a real loss and a sense of our community. I mean, I will speak from my community right now, which is the modern Orthodox community, where there's a sense that we don't, we, there's not a lot of artists and a lot of musicians in, in, in America, as opposed to actually, if you look at uh, a comparable community in Israel, um, there are tons. And every kid is learning a musical instrument because the school day is not as long, it's not as structured, and it's not as crazy, and they're a chugim, and they're all going off and doing things. Not everyone is a world-class musician, but they play, they do, they go, they paint um, in a way that speaks to the soul and nurtures the soul in a much richer and deeper way. So I actually think you have a lot more discussion of very practical creativity coming out of 
the community and particularly maybe the you know the more modern orthodox community or in Israel in general so you see much more of a focus there I think there are a lot of sociological and demographic factors as well the expense the choice of profession driven by the high expense of the community the you know the price of tuition so anybody you know I have a number of people who come to who had come to me when I was teaching in high school now I'm a, you know have a, a wider audience but who would come parent teacher night and sit down like attorney after accountant after analyst and say like really like as I said I'm their therapist I'm here to talk about their children and they're going I really I want to be or I wanted to be right in education the arts music and I can't pay your to your your salary as a teacher in this school because the tuition right forces me so I think right to kind of pull that together um there are a lot of very interesting uh, sociological reasons for why our, our, our communities look the way we do. Nevertheless, I think there's a pushback to try to take our sacred and fundamental sources and 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 pull of, extract the values that will speak to um, the larger holistic sense of, of a child. If we're talking about adolescence and child, so when I teach a text like this, or depending on the context, is it a class on identity? Is it a class on on, on, on uh, you know comparative law? Um, if it is a space to say, well, what how does this speak to you? And then there might be a jump to say, okay, now be the best painter and value. Um, you know, the arts, I, I think there is possibility. Um, Daniel Boyaron actually was, was a professor of Talmud at Berkeley, um, was quoted in a symposium in Moment magazine on origins of Jewish creativity, where a lot of artists, intellectual scholars, theologians, religious leaders were asked to reflect. Um, it's a really diverse symposium. It was very interesting from several years back. Um, and, and he does talk about, like, the manic energy of, of Talmudic interpretation and also kind of cross-fertilization in that the Talmud is a product of a lot of different, right, living in a lot of different environments, um, and that has shaped and formed kind of the Jewish intellectual and cultural and social experience. So I think if, you, if we could speak in language like that, this is not just about scholarship if we're teaching it in a way that is designed to speak to the human being. Yes, they're talking about the baby drash, and they're talking about scholarship and the baby drash, because that's what interested them, and that's, right, when you're looking for the Rosh Hashiva and Pupaziza, that's what we have to, is this Oker Harim or is this Sinai? Because that's what's at the table. But reading that with a value-laden lens can then enable us to, to, to bring it to a wider. I mean, I think that's going to be particular um, for the community, the teacher, the school, and it has to be, you know, mission-driven to pull that out of the text, right? Specifically, if we're teaching these texts to 15-year-olds, who many of whom don't care. Thank you for joining us for the Moon Moment, a podcast from the Moon New York. Be sure to subscribe to the Moon Moment wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about all of our presenters and programs, and for more learning opportunities without limits, visit our website at limudny.org. That's L-I-M-M-U-D-N-Y dot org. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at limudny.